It is estimated that there are some 400 million people affected by mental illness. Most of these people will be undiagnosed and suffer in silence. You are listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta Henry. Joining me today is Dr. Nzinga Harrison. Dr. Harrison is a board certified physician in addiction medicine and psychiatry. She is also campaign psychiatrist for Let's Get Mentally Fit, co founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, and CMO of Anka Behavioral Health Incorporated. Today, we will be discussing the recognition and management of mental health in the non psychiatric clinician. Dr. Harrison, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you so much for having me. So, I wanted to start off today with discussing the importance of non psychiatric physicians recognizing mental illness. Can you expand on that a little for us? Absolutely. So, when we were trained in medical school, psychiatry was kind of on the back burner. And if an issue came up that was in the mental health realm, we kind of pointed that to our psychiatric colleagues or did a psychiatric consultation. Um, but what we know is that not all mental health needs rise to the level of a diagnosis. We know that we have a critical shortage of psychiatrists, and so we can't only depend on our psychiatrists to help us with managing these illnesses. And we also know that when these needs, and I, you know, some will rise to the level of illness, but other will just be mental health needs. When these needs go unnoticed or unaddressed, then they negatively affect the management of whatever other condition needs to be managed, whether it's a primary care, you know, chronic medical health condition, an acute condition, a surgical condition, an obstetric condition, mental health needs will always be playing a role. And so whereas the overwhelming majority of physicians kind of in my generation, um, which now I sound like, you know, older like when I was younger, but in my generation and older, I think the younger physicians are getting a more well-rounded education. But we're kind of like, we don't know how to look for it, and when we do look for it, what do we do about it? But because we know it's really affecting the outcomes of the conditions that non-psychiatric physicians are managing, it becomes our responsibility, one, to look for it, and two, to have a plan for how to respond when we find it. When we look specifically at the conditions that we treat as physicians, are there any conditions that can actually affect mental illness? Oh, absolutely. So the relationship is 100% bidirectional, and that's for, you know, the reasons that all illnesses are biologically determined, psychologically determined, and socially determined. And so we know in acute illness, especially when inflammatory mediators come up, even, you know, post-stroke conditions and myocardial infarction and hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes, all of these illnesses, you know, acute fractures, childbirth, like basically every condition that we have that's really mediated through hormonal systems and mediated through kind of stress systems and cortisol and when the HPA axis They all have a shared physiology with depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, psychotic disorders. And so when those systems are out of whack and causing physical symptoms, we can bet our bottom dollar that the brain is experiencing that same out of whack environment. And so the symptoms that the brain will develop will be along the brain's continuum, which is thinking, feeling, behaving symptoms. 
And so hypertension informs depression, depression informs diabetes, acute fractures and childbirth, the hormonal changes and stress hormonal changes that go along with those are cutting across every single organ system in our bodies. Wow, that's very interesting. Are there some specific illnesses where there is a higher chance of comorbidity with psychiatric illnesses? Sure, absolutely. So when we think of serious, persistent psychiatric illnesses, and I want to go on record and make sure that I emphasize that I'm including substance use disorders in psychiatric illnesses. And so even though I'll address them a little bit separately here, they're one big group. So if we talk about depression, we know that um, depression is highly correlated with cardiovascular disease. Depression is highly correlated with poor uh, control of diabetes. We also know that those go in the opposite direction. So even without a pre-existing history of depression, a person who has a myocardial infarction then increases their risk for developing a depressive disorder following that. And it's not just because, oh, it was sad that you had a heart attack. It's because serotonin is involved in platelet dysfunction, which is also involved in major depression. So the physiological mechanisms are shared. The same is true for diabetes. Any other system that has to do with the adrenals, you know, and endocrine pathologies, especially autoimmune disorders as well, uh, the relationship is bidirectional. So once a person develops a depressive or an anxiety disorder, the risk for those other disorders is higher and vice versa. And then I'll specifically mention migraines as well. Migraines are very heavily serotonergic, and so the combination of migraines and depressive anxiety disorders and chronic pain syndromes is very tightly uh, been represented in the medical literature. You mentioned substance abuse disorders. Can we focus on that for a little? Absolutely. So substance use disorders, of course, the three most common substances that will be um, used are alcohol, cigarettes, and marijuana. Um, and the the physical health effects of those are well characterized as well as are the mental health effects. So if we start with alcohol, we actually learn quite a bit about alcohol in medical school because it's so damaging to the GI system um, all the way from, you know, esophageal varices and reflux to peptic ulcer disease to liver disease going on to cirrhosis and uh, lower bowel conditions, you know, swelling, we get into cardiovascular damage. And so we have a good handle on kind of the physical consequences of long-term alcohol use disorder. What we don't have a good handle on is identifying the alcohol use disorder before it results in those irreversible physical consequences. Um, For cigarettes, of course, we have a great handle on the link between smoking and all types of cancers, whereas before we thought just Lung cancer, we now know that there's an increased risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, basically any cancer because when you smoke, that gets distributed to every single cell in your body. Um, We also know sometimes smoking can make anxiety feel better, right? And so that can be difficult. So you have a cardiovascular patient that you're really working closely with to try to manage their smoking and do some smoking cessation interventions, but they have an unmanaged anxiety disorder that is completely undermining your treatment plan. And then finally, marijuana. The literature is just building for marijuana. It will be less offensive than uh, cigarettes 
and um, alcohol will be, but the smoke is being inhaled and that is changing the physiology of the body. And so we know that there are some lung consequences and potentially some cancer consequences from the marijuana as well. So with those being the three most common substances that are being used, we really want to ask our patients about their use so that we can formulate that into managing what other condition we're managing. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Nzinga Harrison. She's a board-certified physician in addiction medicine and psychiatry based here in Atlanta, and we are speaking about the importance of recognizing and managing mental illness for the non-psychiatric clinician. So, Dr. Harrison, now we know the significance of mental health, but what do we as non-psychiatric clinicians need to do in terms of recognizing and managing this? Um, It's a great question. The first thing I want to say is I'm not asking you to be the primary manager of mental health condition. That would be unfair to you. As a non-psychiatric physician, that would be unfair to your patient. But there are simple ways that we can identify the most common mental health needs that um, a patient in a non-psychiatric setting is going to have. And so the top three diagnostic categories will be a depressive disorder, an anxiety disorder, or a substance use disorder. And like I said um, when we first started, even if the level of symptoms or level of dysfunction doesn't rise to the point of us making a diagnosis, just knowing what is going on in those three domains, if we can improve the amount of stress a person has and kind of reduce depressive symptoms, even if there's subthreshold, that will improve our physical health outcomes. And so what I always advocate, because the, the difficult part is time, 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 right? Like where am I to put in the time to do a full mental health evaluation? You don't have to. Um, There are really great screening tools that have been psychometrically validated that can be given very quickly. They can be in questionnaire format, so when your person checks in, they just answer these six questions. They can be in interview format if you prefer to do that. Specifically, I'm talking about for anxiety, the GAD2. It's a two-question item. It is, over the last two weeks, have you been bothered by feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge, or have you not been able to stop or control your worrying? Two questions, and they answer on a zero to three scale, you know, from like not at all to basically every day is zero, one, two, or three, and you add it up. A score of three or more has 77% sensitivity for an anxiety disorder of some type. That's basically just a cue to you to say to this person, this is the only intervention I'm asking for. I noticed that you scored a little bit higher on this anxiety screening than I would like, and you know your fill in the blank, whatever condition you're managing, is going to be harder to take care of if you're having some anxiety. Let's see if we can get you to somebody to talk to. That's the entire process. You screened for anxiety. You made an educational intervention. This has been shown to be effective in getting people connected and improving their health outcomes. The exact corollary process for depression is with the PHQ-2, It's a two-item questionnaire over the last two weeks. Have you had little interest or pleasure? Have you felt down, depressed, or hopeless? You scored zero, one, two, three um, for each of those questions, so the maximum score is six. The cutoff, again, is three. If you see a three on that paper, you say, I notice you scored a little higher on the depression screen than I would like. Fill in the blank. Whatever condition we're treating, it's going to be harder to treat if you're having some depressive symptoms. I would recommend you look at your insurance panel and see if there's a counselor you can get to. 
And then for substance abuse, it's called the TICS, two-item conjoint screen. Again, it's only two questions. They're yes, no, and so a yes equals one point. And so if they answer yes to one of the questions that has 80% sensitivity for substance use disorder, you say, you know, you screen higher on that substance abuse screen that I would like. Um, fill in the blank. Whatever condition we're treating today is going to be harder to treat if we don't get your drinking under control, if we don't get your smoking under control. So next time you come in, let's talk about that. But in the meantime, let's see if you can cut back. That's your entire intervention. Six questions. You did depression, anxiety, alcohol. You made your intervention for whichever one flagged positive, and it added maybe two minutes to your appointment. But it could potentially make a huge difference for your ability to manage whatever it is you're managing with that person down the line. Where would a non-psychiatric physician have access to these types of tools, these screening tools? Mm -hmm. So these are free and in the public domain, so you literally can just Google PHQ-2, and the first link that comes up will be a PDF of the PHQ-2. You can Google GAD-2, and you can Google TICS, T-I-C-S, and they're all readily available right there. Um, and what I recommend, you know, depending on what your workflow is, so this works for the office setting, this works for the ER setting, this works for the hospital setting, because it's just another form that you put in when people are checking in. And then the, the scores are so easy, you're just looking for a three, a three, or a yes. And then you know your next step is to just give that little piece of education to the patient that lets them know, this is on my radar, and I need it to be on your radar if we're going to be most successful at treating whatever we're treating. So you can literally just Google them. And of course, once we have these concerns on our radar, is there ever a point where you would recommend referral to the psychiatrist? So, yes, but the easiest thing to do, because there are way more licensed counselors, licensed marriage family therapists, licensed clinical social workers than there will ever be psychiatrists. And those are very widely covered by insurance. Like you pretty much never have to worry if your patient has insurance that they won't be able to get in with a counselor or a therapist. So I always say kind of systemically the first referral is to someone, to one of our allied healthcare providers, a counselor, a clinical social worker, or a therapist. And then if the person gets connected to them, they can always make a psychiatric referral because they will also typically have psychiatrists that they have referral relationships with. When you know that you need to make a specific referral to psychiatry is when there's a safety concern. So this is specifically around suicide. So if in your visit this person mentions like, yes, I've been thinking about killing myself, your next question is, are you going to kill yourself before the next time I see you? And if the answer is yes, you actually send them to the nearest emergency room for safety consideration. If I'm not going to kill myself before the next time I see you, but you're still concerned about my safety, that's when you would make a direct referral to a psychiatrist. Otherwise, you can feel completely and utterly appropriate and safe about connecting them to one of our allied health providers because that person is going to do, like all we did was a screener in the office, that allied health professional is going to do a full mental health evaluation, and they will have a level of information at the end that will let them know if a referral to psychiatry is indicated, and then they will do that. You know, I want to step back for a minute. Mental health is 
somewhat of a taboo subject. So how would you recommend as a physician who has my own internal biases, how do I approach this if there is a concern? Yes, thank you for asking that question. The way you approach it is the exact same way you approach any other medical or surgical illness. So what also is taboo is a diagnosis of HIV, right? But never as physicians would we allow ourselves to have a person come into our office and we see on CBC that their white count is 1.9 and we know that they have high-risk sexual behaviors, but we're not going to bring up the question of HIV because it's a taboo subject. That would be malpractice. And so I think we have to consider our depressive anxiety and substance use disorders in exactly the same way. These are medical conditions, and we have a responsibility. So even though it's difficult to talk about, um, people are so open with physicians about things that are difficult to talk about, and often they want to talk about these things, but they let the taboo prevent them from talking about it. Well, we have a professional responsibility to not let the taboo prevent us from doing our jobs, which is providing the highest quality health care that we can. And the highest quality health care that we can provide considers that depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders are highly prevalent. Their impact on all physical disorders is well characterized, and we have interventions that we can make that will make a difference in the health outcomes for our patients. So we just as physicians, we have a professional responsibility to get over that hump, which is stigma, and present it to our patients exactly like we present any other medical concern. Dr. Harrison, we are reaching the end of our time together. Are there any final thoughts you would like to share with us? Sure. The most important thing is that, one, we have a responsibility. Two, this does not have to take a lot of time. And three, for us to use our allied health professionals. They really can take care of you. So you just give that one piece of education, let your patient know it's important, and make the referral. And we've taken care of our responsibility. Dr. Harrison, thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you. This has been very informative on what has proven to be a timely topic. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And to download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. We welcome you to share, like, and comment on this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry, and you've been listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge. Thank you for listening.